This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. In just four years, the Launchpad has helped 216 writers get signed, 68 projects get set up, 35 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. To check out their current and upcoming competitions, visit tblaunchpad.com and see how the Launchpad can jumpstart your professional writing career. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about viewing habits. From watching shows week to week to binging them in one sitting, how does the way you consume a TV show impact the way you enjoy it? And how have those changes in viewing habits had an impact on TV writing itself? So first, let's talk about how people consume media today. Right. So, I mean, this is going to be obvious to most people, but the traditional method, the one that still people are using today, is watching broadcast or cable TV, sitting down physically watching a television. We also have the advent of DVRs, you know, recording episodes, being able to watch them back or out of time. We now have this whole new world of streaming within the last 10 years with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and being able to watch anything on online, on your computer, on your Roku, all that kind of thing. We also have what's called OTT, over-the-top viewing, and that's when networks are providing sort of digital outlets and websites and apps and devices that you can go and watch their shows on outside of your your TV. So HBO Go, CISO, you know, the CW app, all that kind of thing. I mean, the OTT sometimes also refer to like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, and those are usually the content that's over-the-top in the sense that they're not delivered in the traditional linear sense through broadcast systems. We also have VOD video on demand, so that's when you're actually paying to download or rent uh, an episode or a movie off of Amazon or iTunes. Then there's the, all the off-platform stuff like DVDs, Blu-rays, back in the day VHS, all that sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, I do have, like, I think I have somewhere like an old uh, VHS tape of uh, the X-Files uh, nice. back, back in Paris. <laughs> it's in French, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just tape back over stuff when you didn't need it. But uh, And then, of course, there is the slightly shadier and more illegal method of downloading or torrenting things, which still happens, and so it's, it's worth talking about. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, we both partook at some point in uh, time. In uh, younger, more foolish days before we had all this content available to us because we lived far overseas where we actually didn't have access to a lot of it. But now we definitely support doing everything legally and, uh, and paying for it. So I think the key distinction in the way people consume media today is the difference between having something at your fingertips, so to speak, and being able to access whatever show, whatever episode you want to pick and to watch right now versus the olden days where you kind of had to wait until a certain time and a certain schedule and a certain day to watch the show you want and, and creating those water cooler moments that shows were so famous for. And I think this change of distribution and audience consumption, on top of being a distinction between linear and nonlinear content, also comes from the venues where you're getting that content from. As Nick brought up, you have broadcast, DVR, OTDs, and so forth. And I think the fact that so much content now can be accessed online versus on a specific platform that is like cable or TV has changed the game tremendously. And now you do see those companies like even YouTube catching up to the linear landscape in, in the sense that they're merging those two components together. Currently, you have this thing called YouTube TV, not to be confused with YouTube Red. YouTube TV is a service that I think for like $30, $35 a month, you can pay them to have access whenever you want, wherever you want, a series of networks, ABC, ESPN, and those different elements. So in a way, you're basically paying for cable 
on your internet device, which is kind of a weird change. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people our age, myself included, that I don't own a television, I don't own a cable subscription, things like that. So a lot of the way that I do watch television is the next day on Hulu or something when it comes up instead of sitting there and watching it on the actual network itself. And like you said, there are all those other things like, you know, Sling TV or the things that are going to give you access to those channels, just watching it on your laptop or something instead. I think that that slow evolution to getting those elements online, you may be thinking, oh, why is YouTube? TV only existing in 2017. I mean, the internet has existed for decades. And that's in part because of all the FCC regulations that classified some companies as telecoms versus broadcast uh, companies. So now we're finally arriving at a point where you can actually access legally networks that are being broadcast linearly, but on your computer. I think that plays into this kind of notion of shortening attention spans as well as that a lot of this digital content and stuff that is available, you know, for example, YouTube videos or watching a TV show on your phone or something, you have to consider that a lot of the content is being optimized for viewing over two to three minutes, three to five minutes. They're breaking it up into these smaller sections and showing you each little piece like that. You see these highlight reels on Hulu. When you look up a TV show, you can watch two minutes of a scene from South Park or something like that. And, you know, you see them as promos on YouTube. Even, you know, the spacing of ads and stuff is probably calculated to those roughly those attention spans. Well, let me ask you, Nick, how do you watch content? Is it do you actually watch on on phone your TV shows? Do you watch it on like a a big screen that is just purely connected to some media player? Do you watch it on your laptop? How do do you I'd say the vast majority of stuff I watch is on my laptop, just sort of laying in bed or sitting at my desk. I will open up Hulu or Netflix or, or something like that and watch a lot of my content that way. If I'm over at my girlfriend's place, then she has a Roku and we'll put it up on the TV there. I, I try to stay away from watching stuff on a phone. I just still don't kind of understand phone, the, yeah. the appeal of watching something on that small I screen. Really, like, I will watch YouTube videos on a phone, but I can't watch an entire episode of television or something. For sure. I just don't get it. I know some people who've watched episodes of Breaking Bad on their phone, and <laughs> to me, that just kills me. Yeah, that's a lot of the reason why people still go to a movie theater is to see this huge big picture and understand and appreciate all of the beautiful imagery and an effort and resolution and stuff that's gone into it. So yeah, certainly watching that on it's a, such a tiny screen and devices is changing the way that we're meant to be watching it. For sure. I mean, that's what happened when I got like the reason why I got a TV, what like a physical TV screen was not to watch TV in the traditional sense. It was truly to have a device or a screen big enough that I could enjoy properly those TV shows, which in my mind are so well crafted that they deserve to be seen on the big screen and not just on like a tiny device. And it's a whole other discussion to do with features, but there is a lot of that going on in that industry right now where they want to shorten the window between the release of something theatrically and your ability to watch it on demand at home. You know, they're thinking about offering something, you know, a week, two weeks after it's been released, if you want to pay 50, 60, $80 or something to watch it. So again, all more and more and more content is coming to our screens in our homes on demand. And it's something to definitely keep in mind when you're thinking about television. But on the flip side, I think that drive to getting content at home is because people are tired of paying those expensive movie tickets and those high prices. And if you remember back 10, 15 years ago, those DVD sets for entire seasons of shows were very expensive. I remember when I bought one of my first complete season of a DVD set that I got was the second season of Buffy. And I believe at the time it was... This is Euro terms, but I believe at the time it was almost 70 euros. So think about it. You know, it's almost $100 Mm -hmm. for a singular DVD box set. And now I think you can get the complete series of Buffy for probably 100 bucks. Yeah, I was paying 80, 100, 110 Australian dollars for like a big solid box set of Stargate or, you know, those kind of things, depending on how newly it was released. So, But circling back to 
modern days and Netflix and binging and all those elements. I mean, Netflix is prone to making all those studies of who watches their content. And at the end of last year, they've released multiple studies, one of which is categorizing different profiles of viewers. They figured out who's watching their content and specifically how long a specific user is going to take to finish a season compared to the kind of content they consume and the kind of genre. So Nick, do you want to walk us through the three major profiles that they released in a New York Times article last year? Right. So number one is what they called the very fast binger. And these are consumers of primarily genre, so stuff like sci-fi and horror. Now, the median amount of time that this kind of user would finish a season is four days. So the time spent watching each day is like two and a half hours. Uh, so that's like what? Like I feel like three episodes of one hour is about two hours because mm-hmm. uh, it's actually 45 minutes of content. So two and a half hours would be like what? Four episodes a day at least. That's the average <laughs> average time. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing that maybe someone can get around to on a weekend or whatever, but that's a lot of stuff to be putting in every day. So number two is the quick binger. These people tend to watch dramedies and crime dramas mostly. So the medium amount of time that users will take to finish a season of the quick binger users is five days. And the time spent watching each day is around about two hours. And then lastly, you've got the third slightly more relaxed binger. Uh, and they tend to watch comedies and political historical dramas. And the median amount of time that they're finishing a season is about six days. Time spent watching each day is around one hour, 45 minutes. So what are you, Nick? Are you a more of a Rachel or a Monica? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely a very fast binger. I think I'm a more of a genre consumer. And four days seems actually pretty long for me to finish an entire season. Yeah, I guess I'm probably more in the camp of the slightly more relaxed binger. I do gravitate more to comedies, and I will kind of come and go and watch an episode of The Good Place here and there and not have to feel the need to binge through all of it when I when I need to, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think we're probably opposite ends of the spectrum there. That's why we have this podcast, is to talk our differences out. Now, continuing on those like Netflix studies, actually last year they released this thing called binge pairings. And the idea is that over 30 million people around the world using Netflix tend to watch a movie after binging their favorite shows. And so, Nick, uh, do you want to play a game? Do you want to play a game, Nick? (laughs) Uh, Sure, let's do it. I'm scared. Well, okay, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to give you the movie that millions of people watched after a specific show, Mm -hmm. Netflix show, and I want you to guess the Netflix show in question. Oh, wait, number one, Fargo and Fargo. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Fargo is FX, not Netflix, but almost. Uh, All right. What Netflix show do you think people watched before watching the movie Spotlight? House of Cards? No, House of Cards is actually Beasts of No Nation was the movie that most people watched after House of Cards. Interesting. Um, Spotlight was Bloodline. Ah, okay. Now, how about The Big Short? Orange is the New Black. That is correct. Oh, yeah. You win nothing. Finally, what show did people watch before seeing Zootopia? Ooh. I mean, it could be easily be one of the, the, the DreamWorks original shows like King Julian, but I'm going to say like BoJack. The answer is Stranger Things. Oh, interesting. Quite, quite the transition. Uh, there's about a dozen of those examples that we'll be linking in the show notes if you want to play along. <laughs> So let's delve a little deeper into how exactly people's viewing habits that we just discussed are going to influence their perception and enjoyment of television shows. In my mind, there's a 
clear fundamental paradigm shift in the way you actually appreciate a TV show as a viewer, whether you're marathoning an entire season or a show in a few days, or you're watching it on a weekly basis or as it airs. And the biggest thing in my mind is that when you're marathoning something, you're actually enjoying it passively as it washes over you episode after episode. You may be actually thinking about specific things of the show while watching it, but rarely will you take a break to process something that has happened. I actually know people who marathon Buffy recently and continued watching the show in one sitting right after they watched The Body or Once More with Feelings, which are kind of iconic episodes of the show that, in my mind, you kind of need to digest. Do you feel like that kind of information, people are then losing it or it's almost falling out of their heads and they're not absorbing as much as they should be? I think on the on the character level, maybe, but on the narrative level, I think that's a big question mark, especially in the in the case of mythological shows. And I actually wrote a few years ago uh, on TV calling this article called Why Mythological Shows Are Often Idolized. And this was even before Netflix had done original programming or anything like that. It was purely about discussing Lost and Battlestar Galactica and how people who tended to watch both of the shows as a marathon i.e. after the shows ended, enjoyed the show as a whole, whereas a lot of the fans that watched it as it aired preferred specific seasons. So for BHD, that's usually the first couple of seasons, and for Lost, that's usually the first two to four seasons. And that's because when you marathon a show, you actually tend to skip over those mistakes on a narrative level especially. And the reason is simple. That's because you don't have the time to agonize and think over those small details. You don't, you're not going to be spending all these hours, days, weeks thinking about this mystery or this question mark because you're just going to press play on the next episode. Like what did that mean? Or what's going to happen next week? Or where's this leading? It's just kind of like, oh, I'll just find out. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the two key examples in, in both Lost and BSG, like in Lost, you do have that in the first season, this idea of a hatch that's discovered on the island. And as a viewer at the time, you had weeks to think about what was in the hatch. And then right as they opened the hatch in the first season finale, they cut to black and you have to <laughs> wait three freaking months, probably at, at least four freaking months to understand and discover what's in the hatch the answer is desmond spoiler alert but that cliffhanger in the first season you know it took you so long to figure out what's happening whereas currently if you watch lost in the marathon or as a binge watching element of your life you're just going to be pressing play on the first episode of the second season and all these answers are going to be answered for you within seconds and you won't even have time to think about what was in the hatch i'm theorizing yeah especially those big breaks between seasons like being able to just skip right over them that's such a huge difference to the way that their people were intended to consume that originally yeah for sure and that obviously lost was in a pre kind of vod pre netflix original content era and Battlestar galactica is the same way where in the first couple of seasons actually the entire show one of the biggest questions of the show is who are this 12 cylons you know this 12 cylons in the in the fleet who are actually disguised as human beings so to speak and in the first couple of seasons they establish all these rules about who can and cannot be a Cylon. You know, it cannot be Ty because he was present 50 years ago in this epic battle between the humans and the original Cylons. So therefore, since the Cylons at the time had not evolved, he just cannot be a Cylon and so forth. Right. And then you continue watching, and in the third and fourth season, it's revealed that there's actually this notion of the final five, which are the original five Cylons, blah, 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 point is they retconned the actual mythology of the show in that second half of the show and actually ron d moore and the writers have been on the record stating that 
long story short, at the end of the second season, they kind of wrote themselves in the corner and they had to make up kind of a new mythology and a new element to that mystery. So when you marathon BHD in one sitting and you watch all four seasons, one after the other, maybe you'll you'll be wondering, oh, maybe Adama is a Cylon, or maybe, you know, Ty is a Cylon, but you're not actually going to be questioning who's a Cylon on a weekly, daily basis of your life, right? Like I, like I did. This is more of a passive question while you're watching the show. I think that's why you have some people like Damon Lindelof who comes along and, and actually gives critics and viewers a prescription on how to watch their series these days because anyone can can watch it week to week or they can wait and watch it and binge it and that kind of thing. So he actually, with the release of season three of The Leftovers, sent out the first six episodes of it along with a note to all the critics saying, please don't binge this. He didn't think that binging was a good idea. He admitted that he was a hypocrite and he binges things and he knows that that's how people do, but <laughs> he really didn't want critics to just sit there and, and consume six hours of this at once because it wasn't what they intended when they were writing and he didn't think that there was the best way to actually enjoy it. For sure. I mean, and Leftovers is such a specific show in the sense that as I actually mentioned back in the previous episode talking about the art of the TV episode, Leftovers treads the line between serialized storytelling where you have a, an ongoing narrative, but also episodic show where every episode is centered on a specific person, character, and you really go through a journey in that one episode. And so you need time to digest. And I think that's the key difference between if you marathon something or if you just watch it on a weekly basis is you're missing that intermediate period where you're going to be thinking about those mysteries, those characters that are going to be living with you. If you watch Six Feet Under, the five seasons in one sitting, you may be crying after the series finale because the series finale is very emotional. However, that's almost a diminished reaction from someone who lived with the Fishers for literally five years. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's They've kind of become like a family rather than just, this is the last two weeks of my life. This is five years of my life. And I love these people and I'm invested in their struggle and all that kind of thing. But, you know, speaking of what you're saying about time, I think that even within the story, it can affect your perception of time. So if you watched Breaking Bad week by week when it came out on AMC, you were really growing and following this downfall of Walter White over time week by week, as opposed to if you waited and binged it all on Netflix, then, you know, it feels a little more crammed together. And it's like, oh, wait, suddenly he's got a goatee and a hat. And now he's this badass. Like, I don't believe that change is like, well, that's because you weren't watching it as it was intended as well. So it really not only does it affect those other things, but the, the your perception of the time within the show is meant to link in with time in the real world. I think it's funny that you brought Breaking Bad because I think that's a, a paradoxical example where I completely agree that watching it in a really short period of time, you don't really necessarily buy or you're not necessarily as emotionally invested in that transition because you're just ingesting one episode after the other of this five-season show, 50 episodes, even though narratively within the show diegetically the length of time from the first episode to the last episode is only a matter of a few maybe not the last episode but circa the last season is only a matter of a few months that's a paradoxical example where it, narratively it, it is indeed only a short amount of time but as a viewer you should have had the experience of watching it unfold over several weeks months if not years and i think that also changes the perception on the on the legacy standpoint i think x-files is recognized to this day as one of the most influential shows of tv as it should but in part that legacy comes from this idea that it was this super serialized show that was on a network TV show and it kind of revolutionized the way serialized stories are told. But if you look at it practically, only three or four episodes a season of an X-Files season are actually of that mythology. 
And most of them are standalone episodes. And I think that is what makes X-Files, among so many other shows, a great show is because you have those episodic episodes, no alliteration intended. But the fact that X-Files lasted nine seasons originally, and it was a weekly show, made people remember specific episodes. Oh, this is the one with the haunted house or whatever. This is the one with Mulder's sewer monster. And the same goes for Buffy. The same goes for so many other shows that aired week to week with those iconic standalone episodes on top of their ongoing mythology. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because it feels like that trend is almost flipped today where, uh, you know, you have, even in a procedural show, almost every episode involves some element of that serialized story. It's not three or four episodes a season. It's 20, 21 episodes a season. Maybe there are, the, the exception is the standalones that don't connect with the rest of that story. So now it's almost done a, a, f- a full you know, 180. For sure. And I think those standalone episodes that don't connect with the overall stories are usually the one now recognized as potentially better. Uh, again, to go back to the leftovers in the first season specifically, the first season was entirely a serialized narrative where you truly had this narrative about this ensemble of characters, including the main family and Justin Thoreau's character. However, there were two episodes in that first season that drew people's eyes in a positive way, and those were the episodes about Christopher Eccleston's character and uh, Carrie Coon's character. And the reason why people love those episodes so much, amongst other things, is because they were a standalone episode that didn't necessarily connect directly to the narrative that was being told. It was almost like a break from the bigger picture. And if you look at The Good Wife, that's another example of something that has sometimes very serialized narratives. And then they do the odd episode. It's like the, almost like a very special episode that is completely disconnected from the other narratives going on that season. I think that's a very powerful tool. And lastly, I did want to bring up another aspect of marathoning something years later and just watching it all the way through in one sitting versus letting it digest in your mind. And that is that you're actually first in the story itself and not the show as as a whole. And by that, what I mean is at the end of, let's say, watching Battlestar Galactica's first season, you're not really going to look for news articles dating back 10 years talking about the writer's process, unless you're really invested in the specific writers <laughs> in that specific time. But nine times out of 10, you're going to go on to watch the second season and so forth. And the same goes for Lost with Lindelof and Cues. You're not going to be looking for various interviews between when the show was started in 2004 and, and when it ended around 2010. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely something to be said about the zeitgeist of shows. And you know, now that we do have all episodes of Stranger Things delivered at once. It's it's so intensely in the zeitgeist of the culture for about two weeks, and everyone's talking about it. And if you haven't seen it, you're out of the loop of that, and you feel left out. You got to block your ears at work because you can't hear spoilers. And then it just kind of goes away when the next big thing comes along. Whereas previously, it would constantly be every week. Oh, did you watch the new episode of whatever? So now it got to be on that bandwagon, or you're off it completely and un- disconnected from it. For sure, and I think you do lose that sense of community. I think that's that's a key portion of in this day and age where you're so connected with so many people and information is delivered at such a rapid pace and you have all the information at your fingertip and so forth. If you don't watch a whole season of Stranger Things as you brought up or 13 Reasons Why, it's going to be really hard for you to enter that conversation after like a month Mm -hmm. of that show premiering. And even during the release of the show, a lot of people, myself included, try to avoid going online just because I'm in the middle of the season, Mm -hmm. right? I'm on episode eight, but 
Uh, but I do want to talk about this episode because it was awesome, but I can't because if I go online, then people have already seen all of it, and I can't really talk about this specific episode in the middle of the season without having seen the entire season. So that's another drawback that you didn't necessarily have back in the day. It's also sometimes hard to talk about specific episodes because they all blow together, and it's not like you have that spacing of each week to be like, oh, did you watch the one last week where this happened? There aren't those distinct things in each episode where it's like, you know exactly which episode you're talking about. It's suddenly like you have to go, well, how far along the story have you seen and what can we talk about and like you know the one where this happened oh no you hadn't seen that yet whoops i just spoiled it for you like it all just melds together into one for sure i mean it's a continuous novel i think that's the the curse and the benefit of marathoning shows currently and i do think there is this phenomenon as well of sort of like a post binge depression where you're like you know like everything is incredible for a while and you're like this is the best thing i've ever seen and then suddenly you're like oh there's no more of that oh i have to wait an entire year or rather i just went back and watched all of six feet under and then now i'm like oh there's no more of this show ever like there's that intense feeling of like this is gone this is done i wish that i maybe had taken it a little slower or like you know and it's hard also to share with people that that joy in the moment because if you finally watch let's say buffy and you're really excited about buffy in 2017 then it's going to be hard for you to find someone who's equally as hyped about Buffy in 2017 that they were at the time, really, because it's been so long. I mean, maybe now because it's the 20th anniversary, but nonetheless, it's going to be hard for you to find someone who's just seen Buffy and is as hyped about the season as you are. I've seen people post on Facebook like, hey, is anyone a big fan of X show from five years ago? I just watched it and I really need someone to talk oh, to about really? it. Like, you know, that kind of, and wow. I, I made a joke about that once is like, I'm not keeping up with all these shows now because I plan to spend my entire retirement <laughs> watching everything over the last 50, 60 years that I didn't get a chance to see. So if you get a call for me in like 60 years being like hey alex i really need to talk about stranger things you're gonna be like what are you talking about man that show hasn't been on for, <laughs> for decades, decades. <laughs> and then you're gonna be like oh i love like episode seven of the second yeah. season and i'm gonna be like what was that again exactly so we've looked at the viewing habits how they influence you as an audience consumer but now let's talk about writing That's the whole purpose of this podcast. How do viewing habits affect and influence TV writing itself? So I think that obviously writing for a series that is intended to be be binged or allowed to be binged versus one that's coming out week by week, you probably have almost less concern on the part of the writers and on the part of the network about having a more traditional story engine, something that can reset or, you know, people can come in without the context and understand, oh, this is a cop procedural, or this is whatever. The story, of course, should still have a strong driving force. And, and usually in a more serialized show, that's something like a character goal or an arc. But it can be one that requires detailed viewer knowledge of the previous episodes to really understand or appreciate that. It ties back to, again, the art of the episode episode that we did on Paper Team, specifically relating to the difference between a a narrative that's more of a a novel in of itself and a whole versus something that has the aspect of an episodic storytelling engine. If you look even at BoJack Horseman, the first four or five episodes are very much standalone, classic, animated comedy. And then the back half, that's when they hit you in the fields, so mm-hmm. to speak, and it becomes serialized. That's really interesting because I think it was literally episode five where I was hooked on BoJack. Like the previous ones, I was like, yeah, this show's fine. It's whatever. And then once I got that far into it, I'm like, oh, I get it now. This is great. Like this is now where I'm definitely going to go on and watch all of that. And that was that was on purpose. I mean, Raphael has been on the record saying that he wanted to trick you into watching a drama. And initially, it's this interesting, high concept animated comedy. And then by the fifth episode, 
wait, what am I, why, why am I feeling emotions here? And that is another metric that Netflix tracks is how many episodes does it take for someone to, to watch the rest of the entire series? So for example, Bloodline, I think it was five episodes. They know exactly how many episodes someone needs to consume before they're hooked and they will watch the rest of it. I'm really curious about the relationship between that data and the writing. Like, hmm. do they, does the studio tell the writers? Give them a number? Like, yeah. we need them to be hooked by episode two or, you know. Like, Maybe that's Netflix's equivalent of, like, ratings. It's like, okay, you need, like, 12 million or 5.0 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, on the writing level, you need to have this emotional beat hit by episode five. I suspect they don't because everything I've heard from people who've worked on Netflix shows is that they are relatively hands-off and, and, and believe in the creative uh, vision of the, <laughs> the show. But, you know. That's so funny, though, because they're so hands-off on the creative level. But on the on the consumer level, I think that's so hands-on. Mm-hmm. They want to know all the data and all the levels and intricacies of how you watch something on their platform. Absolutely. So moving on to sort of another story and writing consideration is this notion of cliffhangers. I think that counterintuitively, they're now less needed. You'd think, oh, maybe you need even bigger cliffhangers because you want someone to watch the next one and the next one. But people are already going to be invested in these characters in this story. And and the video is automatically going to start in 10 seconds anyway. So if you have that engagement and you've got nothing better to do, you have to be anywhere, you're probably just going to sit there and keep watching because the entirety of, of the thing has done a good enough job of pulling you in that it doesn't need to end on, oh my God, will he be alive next episode? It's just like, oh, I'm enjoying the story. I want to watch more. And I think that's very true also of other more premium cable network shows like FX or even HBO shows where they don't necessarily invest so much of the narrative weight on that ending, on that cliffhanger, because you've lived in that one hour uh, compelling enough narrative. And some Netflix shows revert back to cliffhangers. I mean, 13 Reasons Why on some level has cliffhangers, but I would argue that that's not really the main draw for you to continue watching. It's the entire premise in of itself. And what's funny is that in 13 Reasons Why, there's an actual conversation in the show itself about binging versus not binging because oh, really? the conceit of the show is this character receives these these tapes and other characters previous prior to him have received these tapes. So then there's a discussion about how they consume those tapes mm-hmm. in the sense of, oh, what do you mean you're listening to one tape every day? Like I... When I got them, I literally <laughs> stayed awake the entire night just listening to them one after Listen the other. to them out of order. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but I do think that we do have the ability now to have your episodes flow more naturally into each other or have softer endings, you know, more like the chapter of a sure. story. I mean, that's especially prevalent in most Marvel shows, especially, where it kind of like if you look at Daredevil, uh, the first season especially, it's kind of like one continuous narrative in and of itself. And the same goes for kind of this notion of ad breaks as well. We, you mean you literally don't need to write act breaks into scripts for streaming or for cable and that kind of thing because unlike network they don't need to cut out and and have an ad and then come back from that so you do have these things like you don't need to repeat information as much as you do in like a network procedural and also those kind of like seven act shows you don't need to artificially inflate the drama on the pacing using act breaks as mini climaxes in the story you can tell a much slower burn if that's what you want to do I would be really curious to see like a seven act type structure as a Netflix show. Like what would that look like? How would that work? The pacing would be insane. You would need to take a break after like two episodes. I just cannot imagine marathoning that. And there's also this whole thing that people keep calling the 10 hour movie. And I was listening to a podcast the other day with the creators of Shots Fired. And they said that they do not refer to their show as having episodes. They refer to it as hours. So he's like, so in hour two of our show or in hour three instead of episode one or episode two. So it, it is this thing that people... People are increasingly seeing serialized television as a 10-hour 
hour movie. It's just broken up into parts. And what that means for us is that the structure doesn't necessarily need to be a perfect self-contained episode each time, as long as it's engaging enough to make you want to watch the next hour. And I think that allows for some freedom in the rules of writing for t- TV, like Legion. You know, I mean, Legion brings like so many examples of non-linear storytelling also. And to go back to Shots Fired, I think what's interesting is Shots Fired is a network TV show. So even the networks now are going, even with American Crime on ABC, you have these examples of almost miniseries. And partly it is due to this evolution of distribution of content, but I think also partly because of the advent of anthology series, Mm -hmm. uh, you do have those elements of you're more free to create this contained narrative. Yeah, I think they're trying to play catch up with the streaming services in some way and go, this is the way that people have been enjoying uh, consuming content. I think we should be doing this as well. And we don't, and they're trying to find a way to stop their audiences from falling off. And if it's hooking them into a series that they're super invested in the story and the characters, then maybe that's the best way to do it. Yeah, the, the engine is not as much the episode itself, but more the conceit of the entire show and the characters mm-hmm. through it. And historically, networks had always shied away from anything that was too heavily serialized because it wouldn't allow for syndication. You can't play reruns out of order for a serialized show, whereas these days that's much less of a consideration. And even the entire notion of needing to have 100 episodes to syndicate is basically non-existent. Now, you can sell any amount of episodes onto Netflix or Hulu or any of those places. And the fact that you sort of know that the person who's going to be watching episode 30 has already watched the first two episodes is a huge consideration in that as well in, mm-hmm. in terms of the narrative. Yeah, you don't have to rely on hoping that they were around at 7 p.m. on Tuesday night to have seen the <laughs> previous episode and they're going to be there exactly on that time again. So I wonder how many how many Netflix shows have a previously on segment. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, even this plays into sort of the buying habits of networks as well. Like I see all the time in these networks needs documents that they're looking for, or I hear from execs that they're looking for shows that could be a novel. That's the latest kind of catchphrase is like, bring us your shows that could be a novel, as opposed to that week to week kind of thing. You know, previously novels and books were most fitted to being adapted into a movie because you had more time to tell it, even if that meant condensing something, look at Lord of the Rings or whatever, like you're condensing so much information to those times and you have to make it an entire trilogy just to get the bare bones of it out. But now these properties have the ability and the room to tell their story over many, many more hours on television, 10 hours, 12 hours, that kind of thing, and multiple seasons. So many networks are actually now seeking out and wanting to buy stories that specifically have to be told over a longer period. I think in part it's because they see the content as a whole and not as pieces. And before they wanted to fit each episode within a schedule and each show within a specific grid for advertising and so forth. And now, obviously, adverts are still a concern, but they understand that the consumer is not necessarily going to be watching their show linearly on their network. It may be something, the second window of the show is so much larger now than it was 10, 15 years ago, where the only option to watch it after it aired was waiting a year for the DVD to come out. And now also we have this kind of advent or resurgence of limited and event series. And also the lines kind of blur between what those are and regular or anthology series. Yeah, I mean, they all kind of mean nothing. It's like miniseries. What's a miniseries at this point? Yeah. Like limited event. I don't know. It's whatever you want to put your thing in for the categories for the Emmys, I oh, guess. God. Um, <laughs> so you know, you've got these shows like The Night Of and American Crime Story and Night Manager, all that kind of thing. Like these networks and streaming services are looking for stories that also have these defined endpoints. And so they're not actually 
wanting something that has to give them five seasons, 10 seasons. And one of the benefits of this is that they can attract higher level talent, like actors and directors, pull them over from films and stuff, knowing that they're not going to be stuck under a contract to have to return again. So they can tell a 10 hour movie and they can have the best people involved in it. And there's no obligation to then have multiple more series if it's successful. Yeah. I mean, that's the, you brought up American crime story. That's more of an anthology, but even if you look at goes like Flesh and Bone on Stars or Under the Dome on CBS. I think in part it's production companies and studios and networks hedging their bets saying, okay, if it doesn't work, we're going to say it's a limited series because there's a semi sense of closure at the end. But if it does work, then we're going to be making five seasons and running into the ground. That's basically the, like the, the chasm that you see. And that is why now you have so many anthology series is because you can keep that sense of quality and closure within the 13 or 10 episodes, but still have a sense of renewal in the second season when it has kind of the same feeling and maybe some of the actors are there again, but it's kind of new as well. Yeah, they also like those kind of event series and limited series to fill gaps in their seasons. They're like, here's our big summer thing and here's our big fall season. We're going to put this this event series in between them and fill up some kind of time in our schedule. But like you were saying with these anthologies too, it's almost the best of both worlds. It's halfway between an ongoing TV series that will give them multiple seasons and that ability that we talked about to, to tell a story contained within one season. Um, it allows for this specific auteur vision to persist. Uh, I know. That's I know. a grown at auteur. I, I, uh, I also don't really like that notion of time but you know it allows that kind of vision to persist across seasons while still changing subject matter and, and cast of characters even though it's sometimes literally the same actors yeah true detective i think is the prime example of something that fits all those ideas of okay we want an auteur and we want it to be a novel because this guy's from the novel mm-hmm. side of things and then it feels complete it feels whole there's some depth to it there's some thematic elements the characters are so compelling and then the second season happens and you see what happens in the show that is meant to be a limited run. Yeah, I mean, there are more successful stories like Fargo and even arguably American Horror Story. You, you still have the vision of Noah Hawley or Ryan Murphy continuing season to season, but they're telling self-contained arcs. Of course, I'm just saying that True Detective, I don't think, was intended as sure, similar. Yeah. Like Fargo and American Horror Story or like Crime Story especially were intended as those anthology series I agree. that... Yeah had depth to it beyond just the one season. I think the last thing that's important to note as well is that these viewing habits and this migration of a lot of stories to streaming services and bingeable kind of content on cable and even network now is the ability to write more niche stories and things for smaller audiences, particularly subscription services that are now kind of leading today's viewing habits. What it allows them to do is offer a wider spread of content to capture the widest breadth of an audience because that sells more subscriptions rather than the biggest numbers watching one particular show trying to get 6 million people to watch Big Bang Theory. They can have six different shows that cost the same amount and cost a much wider net out to people. They don't care if you buy a Netflix subscription to just watch Arrested Development. They still have your money and they don't make any more or less whether you watch one show or 100 on their service. Right. I think there's still a question in 2017 and maybe I'll be answered in the years to come as to what OTTs look like and what niche people need. And what I'm actually saying here is you have something like Netflix that is, for all intents and purposes, a network, a broad broadcast network as an OTT platform because you can watch comedy, half hour, one hour, all formats, all genres, 
children's animation, whatever you want. On the flip side, you have something like CISO that's kind of like the IFC of OTT in a way, and it's very specific humor, British humor sometimes. Their originals are also very specific. So you do have this breadth of content. Now the question is, who's actually going to subscribe to all these different things? Because then you do have cable 2.0 in the sense that you're going to be paying $5 a month plus $5 a month times however niche OTT you want to subscribe to. So that's, I think, the big question in content. Yeah, the landscape has very cunningly replaced the, you know, the problematic thing of cable. I don't want to pay $200 for all of these channels and that kind of thing. I just want to buy exactly what I want. And then they've gone and recreated again with OTT and been like, well, now here are all these channels you have to buy individual subscriptions to. So it's essentially just the same as it was before. Exactly. I mean, if you're going to be buying 20 OTT services at $10 a month, then you're going to be spending those $200 anyways. Exactly. So, I mean, what kind of practical things can we do as writers armed with this knowledge of the viewing habit landscape these days? I think one of the key opportunities you have with platforms like Netflix and other OTTs is that in your writing, you can actually set things up initially that won't pay off until 10 episodes later. And that's the same in comedy for shows like BoJack, but also drama and 13 Reasons Why, where you flash back to something that happens in the first episode, but you don't get that joke until the last episode for BoJack with the, uh, what was it, the pasta strainer that mm. they set up initially early on in the season to only pay it off way later in the in down the line. I think after the the shortest panel back, back at WannaCon, uh, Raphael has been, was saying that they actually did not know the butt of that joke until they broke those last episodes. Yeah. And yet they still set it up early in the season. Yeah, I think for comedy too, it really does give you the ability to tell more serialized comedic stories than those traditional hard reset, here's our story engine, here's our situation sitcom. You know, for example, stuff like uh, Atlanta or You're the Worst on FX or even, you know, Transparent back on Amazon, you don't need to have this it doesn't have to resemble an episode of Friends or The Big Bang Theory anymore. You can really tell an ongoing story like Love as well on, on Netflix. Those kind of shows. Without, um, without a laugh track is what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're much more accepted and people are much more willing to embrace this serialized, low-fi comedy. Even on network TV, I mean, The Good Place mm -hmm. is an ex another example of a half hour that has this ongoing serialized narrative that is meant to pay off at the end. Mike Schur actually went to Drew Goddard and the Bad Robot folks to discuss serialized narrative and having a mythology in a, on a comedy show, which at this point, besides Arrested Development, potentially isn't commonplace. Yeah, it's certainly a much newer concept. And another element that you can take into your own writing regarding the concept of marathoning and binge watching and how it can pay off for you creatively is this idea of non-linear narrative. Now you have the option knowing that the audience is going to be watching 10, 13 episodes in a row in a very short period of time. You can tell non-linear stories. Arrested Development, the fourth season, is a great example of that. Say what you want about the quality of jokes and the content and the story, but it did something never before seen on television. Mm -hmm. And I think the same can be said about Bloodline. The same can be said about 13 Reasons Why. And those shows are able to tell something completely non-linear, knowing that there's going to be a payoff, as we brought up earlier, but also that the audience is going to be invested enough in seeing the end of that story. 
so I guess that brings us to what is the future of our viewing habits? Like, can we speculate about where we're headed? There have been such monumental changes over the last 10 years. Do you think that we're going to be watching all of our content online on these streaming services? Are we going to be watching stuff on computers and phones and tablets? Will network television die? Like, what do you uh, think? That's such, that's such a heavy question. What's going to happen to television itself within 10 years? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it's what I said earlier. I, I do believe there's going to be kind of a reckoning in a way of OTT networks so to speak platform and the concept is so recent compared to television which has you know 60 years before it that it's going to take a while before you see the ramifications of oh this ott network failed what lessons can we take from it and make a better one i think netflix is going to last for a while just because you know it's the model of the broadcast network it's very broad and appeals to so many people across the world and also, how do you think like advertising fits into this kind of new space? For example, we've got Hulu or playing ads in between your shows and Netflix isn't. And, you know, we're going to see more sponsored and branded content. How do advertisers exist in this new frontier? I think that's a hard question. How do we monetize uh, our content? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to, as you brought up, like sponsored uh, content or product placement. I think that's that's one of the biggest questions to answer is, as creatives, how can we do product placement in a smart, clever way with, without it devaluating the content itself? Mm-hmm. Like that's the uh, community question. episode with the Honda. Did you ever see that? No. Okay. Wait, I know I know about the subway examples, like the horrible, was it a positive or negative example? Uh, I kind of enjoyed it. I don't know what the critical reaction to it was, but essentially they cre- created a storyline that was like the episode was branded content or sponsored content from Honda, but then they like were self-referential and self-aware within the thing where they had... Honda was sending like sales reps to pretend to be community college students to like hang outside of the building, <laughs> leaning on their new Hondas and being like, just kind of like shouting out to the air, like, oh man, I do love my new car. And like, hey, have you seen this new Honda? Like, you're just kind of like, <laughs> that's actually pretty clever. Yeah. But I think like it works because community is such a meta show, exactly. right? So it makes a comment about that. But like on the drama side, it's hard. I think something similar happened on Hawaii Five, like an infamous example of bad park placement was. I think Subway on Hawaii Five O, where they took time out of the story oh, no. to enjoy a Subway sandwich or <laughs> something like that, and I think that's, that's that's so bad. That's the line is when it draws you out of the story instead of deeper. Chuck is actually a good example of the Subway product placement because they s- sort of saved the show in the fourth season by sponsoring the episode and, and sponsoring basically a store within the narrative, like a store within the show. Right. It was a whole deal. Um, and like that better was, call Saul and Cinnabon. Like who would have thought that that was going to be a thing? <laughs> was it actually pro- like, was it like legit product placement where they paid? Yeah, they, well, I mean, like if you've ever been to a Cinnabon store recently, they have these standees up that it's like win a trip to Mexico or something. And there's a big picture of the Bob Odenkirk on a standee wow. being like Cinnabon, better call Saul. So like there's a legitimate relationship between these two things. I mean that that's where I call it win then. <laughs> yeah. uh, it makes you it makes you talk about it in a positive way, not in a why did uh, Bob Odenkirk eat a Cinnabon in this random episode of Better yeah, Call Saul? I mean he was working in one as his undercover thing in the very first episode. Yeah, this whole thing. So. Cool. So what are our takeaways from today's episode? Well, number one, understand the differences in the way TV content is distributed today: linear versus nonlinear, and broadcast versus OTT. Number two, realize that the audience's enjoyment and perception of narrative and character is actually informed by the pace at which they're going to consume that content. And number three, learn the ways modern viewing habits can have an impact on your television writing. And uh, do we have any resources for our listeners? 
Well, in this episode, I mentioned multiple Netflix studies, both of the audience and the content itself. So I'll be linking those in the show notes so you can check them out yourself. And there are a ton of think pieces out there. there there's no newspaper or publication oh that has not written a think piece on how binge watching is affecting people these days. Uh, so um, try some of the more reputable ones like New York Times and that sort of thing. And everyone has their hot take on it. So have a look at a few of those. <laughs> including us, apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So as always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. You can get the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 42. As always, you can leave us reviews at paperteam.co slash iTunes. Remember that leaving us awesome iTunes reviews help the show get new listeners, which means we can create more content for you guys because we love you. And once again, we would like to thank our sponsor, the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. Paper Team listeners can save $15 off their next purchase if you just use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout to receive your discount. You can learn more about all of the Launchpad's current and upcoming writing competitions by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinion, ideas for future episodes, send them to us at ask at paperteam.co. And next week, a very special friend of ours, we will be having Gary Sunt, who is a comedy writer, and he's also spent a lot of time in comedy writing rooms as a writer's assistant, showrunner's assistant, and he has uh, some great insights on that for us. We'll see you then. <laughs>